Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners and viewers to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm very pleased to have as my guest Dr. Stephen Ambler. He's Associate Director of Professional Curriculum in the Physical Therapy and Orthopedic Surgery Program at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Ambler, welcome. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. I really enjoyed your uh, point of view article in PTJ. It's entitled Return on Investment in Physical Therapy Professional Tension, and I look forward to talking with you about it. You know, in the beginning of your piece, you note that there's growing concern that student debt is, is dissuading people from entering the physical therapy profession, and it decreases quality of life of new professionals and leads to stress and burnout and increases attrition from the profession. Could you talk a little bit about how substantial the current level of debt of DPT students is? How big of a problem are we dealing with here? Absolutely, and, and thanks. And I just, just super quick, I want to acknowledge my co-authors, uh, Dr. Diane Jetty and Dr. Terry Nordstrom, um, who were kind enough to just uh, say, go ahead, Steve, for the, uh, for the podcast. And, um, you know, I think, I think I would say that the, uh, the, the debt is substantial, at least what we know. And so, um, you know, I also think we don't know a lot. You know, I had a paper in uh, January in PTJ that uh, attempted to profile debt. It was a smaller study. It was part of my dissertation work. And we, you know, th those ranges were um, 100 to 125,000. At least that was the most, the most common um, and the APTA report, APTA put out through the Education Leadership Partnership in June, a great report that was, a, you know, a broader, more national survey. And um, I think there, the PT debt, the, so the DPT education debt was averaged around 116,000. So if you start looking at the debt to income ratio, I think that's substantial in, in my smaller study you know, it was about 1.9 or, or, or 197%. Um, that's significant. That's up above um, the other health professions that we often compare ourselves to. Um, and, and also the per month, the, the per month costs uh, were really high. So if you remove people that were not yet in repayment from my original study, um, it was about 0.2 or about 20%, a low 20 percentage of monthly income that was going to debt payments. That's also way above what would be recommended um, on just general um, debt and monthly income. You know, it struck me in reading your piece that you mentioned that the economic uh, debt load is going up, uh, I think from over a couple year period. Uh, for graduate education, while at the same time it's been going down for undergraduate education. I, I was surprised by that. Why do you think that's happening? Well, this is, um, this is fascinating, and, uh, but maybe not in a good way, but I find it really interesting. And um, it, so there's, a, there's probably many reasons. I, I think one of, the, one of the big things is over that time period, 
and and we see this trend across higher education for decades. You know, when the economy is doing well, um, less people are are entering higher education, um, and that's at the undergraduate level. That trend doesn't always follow at the graduate level. So, while enrollment was dipping in the undergraduate uh, programs during that time, graduate programs continued you, you know continued to see strong enrollment. So, so you have a numbers game there. That's probably somewhat related. I, the, the biggest thing, though, is undergraduate borrowing is more capped. Um, and, and at the graduate level, it's almost uncapped, or, or really it's set at the cost of the program. So as the program uh, costs in, in PT and other uh, graduate or doctoral professions goes up, those loan amounts you know, have adjusted with that, whereas undergraduate amounts um, you know, are capped at much lower. And so I think that makes a big difference. There's another, there's another couple of really interesting things I think to keep an eye on there. And so one is that the, you know, tuition, tuition remission or, or, or tuition discounting is a much more common practice in undergraduate education, especially at small private institutions where that are more tuition dependent. So to keep their enrollments up over that time period, it's much more tuition discounting. Maybe not a great long-term strategy, some would argue, but we're not really used to doing that in physical therapy or in other graduate programs. So the, you know, the borrowing continues uh, because the tuition stays high. Some of the literature that you cited in your piece suggests that the economic value or economic return of the physical therapy profession is not on par with other health professions. If that's the case, and I have no reason to think it, it isn't, what should the profession be doing about that? Well, yeah, that, that was, you know, Rich Shields' paper from Iowa and uh, that, that modeled that. And I think there's a number of things that I try to talk to our students about this, and this, this is actually one of the things we should be doing. But there's a lot of things you can do on the individual level, and these are easier things to do. They maybe don't have as, as big of an impact immediately, but I do think they matter. So programs being more transparent overall, making sure that people interested in physical therapy have a clear understanding of what it's going to cost to obtain their degree, and then have, a, have an idea of what they're going to make when they finish, you know, so that those things are not a surprise to them. And then while people enter the profession, so at the you know, entering PT school, we need to talk with them. We need to counsel them on debt management. We need to talk with them about what the loans are. So there's the maximum amount you can take, and then there's what you need. And that varies across individuals. And some people are going to need more. That's okay. But some people are not going to need as much. And we really need to work with individuals so that they can manage that. But more broadly, you know, at a systems level, I think the profession needs to continue its advocacy for programs like Health Service Corps and other programs like that, where the public, if you will, are, are also supporting the education of the health professional, in this case, the physical therapist. And so we need expansion of those programs. And then there's the other side of the equation, which is payment and you know, continuing to demonstrate our value in the healthcare system and realizing that what it takes to deliver physical therapist services and making sure that we are paid adequately for those things. Because 
There is the debt amount, but there's the, that debt to income ratio that I mentioned earlier, which is really important. We see other health professions with similar debt amounts, but their incomes are much greater. And that's a really important distinction. And finally, I think that the academic programs themselves and, and academic physical therapy as a, as a unit of the profession really needs to take a look at things at a system level to you know, to see if we are delivering our education most efficiently and also making sure that we're supporting the, the future development of the profession. Do you think there are good opportunities to reduce the cost of DPT education? Well, this is a complicated answer. And so I get worried about it because I think we don't want to overreact for a short-term solution. In other words, I think the quickest thing to do when we look at tuition, something that's tuition driven is to reduce the length and reduce the, the cost um, upfront. And we should be looking at that. We should be looking at, you know, how long does it take and can we be most efficient? But I think that we also need to look at, we need to define academic physical therapy first and decide what should the programs be doing? How should they be contributing to our body of knowledge, the development of new professionals and, and, and clinical practice? and then seeing how can we leverage economies of scale. And there, there's really two important, important areas to look at there. So, you know, what, what's sort of the sublinear scaling that we might really benefit from, from infrastructure? And others in our profession, uh, you know, have written and spoke about this at some of our lectureships. And for example, it's probably not a, a, a linear uh, curve if you, increase cohort size, you probably don't need to continue to increase the faculty at a one-to-one -one over time. So we might really benefit from some of that infrastructure scaling. And we also see that programs that, that do grow in this way have a lot of then that super linear scaling on the outcomes that they produce. So more research, more patient care delivered, and of course, more students you know, and learners that become uh, professionals in the profession. So I think some of this long-term is defining ourselves as academic physical therapy, and then coming together in a way that we can take advantage more nationally, more globally, but st still act locally. Mm -hmm. That's a long-term solution um, that, that takes us really taking a hard look at, at ourselves. Um, but I, I worry that creating many, many more short, small programs gives us a, a, a quick reaction, a quick chance to reduce the cost a little bit. But in the long run, I think it could be much more problematic for us. Isn't that in fact what's happening though? There's still a proliferation of small programs occurring in private universities and colleges. I think it is what's happening. And I think that we're not alone. So physical therapy as a graduate or professional program is not alone in this. Actually, in some of the literature we cited in the paper that you mentioned earlier about the difference in graduate and undergraduate debt amounts, graduate programs that are not too difficult to initiate have been a, an offset revenue stream for institutions that are struggling financially. And you know, the fear is that physical therapy could be one of those professions being used in that way. Yeah, I think that was part of the thesis of Jim Gordon's Macmillan lecture a few years ago. 
Absolutely. Uh, that lecture and, and uh, Dr. Gordon's uh, Sarah Soli before that were really what uh, got me interested in eventually what became my PhD work. Now, let's get to one of your main theses in, in the piece that you and your colleagues wrote. You, you argued that it's important that we take a more holistic view beyond just the economics. And we've been focusing so far on the economics. Talk a little bit about why you think the holistic view is important. Yeah, yeah. And so to, to back up just slightly, I think even a more holistic of the economic view is important. And then I'll, I'll say why the non-economic is, is so important. So we were really focusing on the individual economic returns. So we're talking about the debt of the individual, the income of the individual then out, out in the workforce. Um, but there's a, there's a broader view of the economic variables at the societal level. So there's what does PT as the profession give to the public you know, what do we provide our society? And, and then what, what then should the public contribute to the development of those professionals? And, and that some of that is economic and I think it's really important. And even in some of the other professions like medicine where they do have more public support economically towards the development of, of their professionals, it's still not a lot when, when you look at what we spend on healthcare. So, so even on the economic side, we need to bring the learner more into that equation, the development of the professional more into that equation from the societal side, not just the individual. The non-economic returns also, I believe, have an individual aspect and a social. So um, the, and a lot of what we focus on, again, are the individual returns. So uh, what is it about becoming a physical therapist that provides you non-economic benefit, autonomy in your work, um, you know, freedom of when and how to do your work, and other things that go along with becoming a professional, um, and also you know the the calling that a lot of us have had when we be, we've become a physical therapist and the joy and fulfillment we get from doing that work. You know, I think those things matter in the equation of sort of determining how someone perceives the ROI from, you know, getting a DPT and becoming a physical therapist. And then finally, that non-economic societal piece, which are what, what are all those other, other goods that we provide for individuals that are non-economic? So yes, we might save the health, healthcare system a lot of money because our management perhaps um, you know, costs less money, but also uh, provides really good outcomes in particular examples. And we've got a, we've got a growing body of literature, uh, you know, through CoStar and a lot of the work that the foundation has done that's showing some of that. But what are the other non-economic benefits that our patients receive um, that, that are also really important? And you mentioned in your article that these are clearly more difficult to measure and you, you, you make a call for more research, particularly from a systems level to look at some of these. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of research that you're suggesting is important? Because I think that would really help uh, listeners. Yeah, I, well, I think that we want to expand some of the work that's been done at the individual and economic level to those 
non-economic variables and then start to see how they might interact. You know, in other words, I think that I, I want to be real careful that it's, it's okay to want a decent economic return uh, for joining our profession. It's, it, and so I actually, sometimes I get worried talking about these non-economic benefits that I think are really important because I worry that our professionals, especially our newer professionals will perceive that as a, you know, well, how dare you want a better salary or a, a lower debt to income ratio? That's not true at all. We should, we should be paid well for the services that we are delivering. And it, we shouldn't necessarily make an assertion that some of these benefits are valued over others. And, and so it's really about seeing how they interact. Um, in other words, I think that even someone's view of their individual economic return on investment might be impacted or moderated by some of the non-economic individual returns. And here, here's what we're seeing in some of the focus study work that we've started now, and which is if you don't have autonomy, so if you're missing some of these other non-economic returns that are supposed to come along with being a member of a profession, then, and this is, I need to say this is anecdotal or this is me just sort of hypothesizing right now, but you start to see a worsening perception or view of the economic return. So I think they're very, they're very intertwined. And maybe you can see the start of that through those vignettes that we put in the paper, which are people with very similar debt to income ratios, but with very different views of the economic return for their degree. Is that um, the kind of research you're suggesting needs to be done beyond the anecdote? Yeah, so I, th I think first we want to expand and gather what are these non-economic factors. And that's, that's difficult because it's, it's probably not just what we did for some of the economic study, you know, and basic surveys. It's more qualitative research where we really, you know, need to interview or, or do focus groups and, and then get an idea of what this is meaning to individuals. And so that's one. And I think the other thing is we need to look over time. I do also worry that we take a short-term view of the return and in a profession like physical therapy, at least in the time that I've been involved, and of course, it's gone up and down with changes in, in healthcare policy, like a lot of other professions. But in general, I'm going to say that it's it's been a fairly, uh, it's been a profession with pretty good longevity. Um, in other words, you could stay in it for a long time and be employed uh, at a fairly high wage for a long period of time. And so, I do think we need to also do research that takes a look at a more long-term return on investment, particularly some of the economic variables. And that, that net present value and some of the things that Dr. Shields wrote about, um, Georgetown, uh, the, uh, Georgetown University's got a, a center for education and workforce that has done some of this work looking at degrees overall, college degrees. We can model some of that and do some of this for our profession. And I think it's coming because that the House of Delegates this last year also you know, passed additional motions for additional work now on studying our workforce and the projections of our future workforce. So I think 
a lot of these broader uh, research topics for ROI for our profession are coming. It, it's, it's a growing area for sure. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about your article today and congratulations on its publication. I, I did enjoy it a great deal and I encourage our listeners and viewers to take a look at it in PTJ. So thank you very much. I enjoyed our conversation. Well, thanks so much for the time.